I'd like to invite you to please rise for the call to worship. The call to worship this morning is from Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. A Psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, you are glorious, all-powerful. You are wonderful. Oh, Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that Jesus Christ would die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, satisfying your wrath on behalf of all those whom you would call and draw. Well, Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you send to dwell within us, to bring us from death to life and give the gifts of repentance and faith. Well, Father, we pray that you would grow us up in the likeness of your Son. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Grace to and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to invite you to sing with me number 230, Holy, Holy, Holy.
may be seated. For a time of confession and pardon, I'll be reading from John chapter 6. I'll first be reading verses 35 through 37. Leading us in a prayer of confession, and then continuing on with John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, you are truly holy, Holy, holy. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion is beyond our comprehension. That while we were yet unholy, godless, sinners, in open rebellion and hostility against you, that you would send your holy, eternally begotten Son to take on flesh and to die for your elect of every tribe, nation, language, and people. Oh, Father, we are amazed by your grace and your mercy. So, Father, again, we want to humble ourselves to take this time to confess, to repent of those times, those areas, those contexts of our life where we continue to hunger and thirst for the things of the world, for the the sinful desires of our old fallen flesh, where we continue to cling to lies and deceptions of the devil rather than Look to you, your Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit for all our hope, peace, comfort, and life. So, Father, we want to confess to you now in our thoughts and in our hearts.
John chapter 6, starting at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Know this, that if you truly believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you've been made alive through the power of the Holy Spirit with the gifts of repentance and faith, Know this, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you have been given the gift of eternal life. In Christ's glorious name, amen. In our time of confession of faith, we continue working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism. This morning we're on Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26. Question and answer 69. This is the section where we're looking at how the sacraments of Lord's Supper and baptism point to the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord's Day 26, question and answer 69. I'll ask the question. I invite you to respond with me with the answer. How does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ? One sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit washes away my soul's impurity. That is all my sins. What a glorious depiction of the amazing reality of, as Paul depicts for us in Romans 5 and 6, that in baptism you have the dying of the old self, being buried, being raised by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to live in him forever. What a glorious depiction of the gospel. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. How amazing it is again to come before you. To bow before you. To cry out to you. Knowing that you hear the prayers of the saints. You hear the prayers of those whom you have adopted in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Oh, Father, we come to you hungry, thirsty, weak, and weary, acknowledging that in and of ourselves we have nothing, no strength, In this fallen world, there is nothing that satisfies but you, your love, your grace, your mercy. 
your wrath, your vengeance, the glorious truth of who you are and all your holiness. Only you satisfies, for you are the author of life. You are the source of all light, everything that is good, everything that is holy and right and true and perfect. That's why to you belongs all praise, glory, and honor. That's why your Son is to be high and lifted up and exalted, Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, Father, we pray that you would help us, for we are weak, and you and your Son and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the only source of our strength, our peace, our comfort, our joy, our salvation, our very life. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would fix our eyes, fix our hearts, our minds on your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would keep your gospel ever before us, woven within our conversations, our thoughts, that we would live according to the glorious reality that we have died with your Son, Jesus Christ, and we have been raised to new life, that he is our life. Oh, Father, we pray that you would grow us up in the likeness of your Son. Oh, Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ that you bring into our lives to help us Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to submit to one another, to encourage, to support, to correct, rebuke, exhort with patience and love. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us to love one another as you have loved us. Oh, Father, we pray for our elders, deacon. Oh, Father, we pray that you continue to strengthen and guide them, grow them in wisdom and understanding that they may equip the saints for ministry, each and every one of your saints, O Lord. O Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and guide us in all these things. Remind us, O Lord, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the chief shepherd. And that we seek to give him glory in all things. O Father, we, we do pray not only for our church, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world facing tremendous persecution and opposition. We pray for those who are caught in the midst of warfare and conflict. Oh, Father, that you would be their peace, their strength. We pray for the church in the Ukraine. We pray for the church caught between Israel and Gaza. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help our brothers and sisters in Christ to lift up your gospel and to reach out to the lost around them. Oh, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in North Korea, throughout the Middle East. Oh, Father, that you would be their peace and their strength. Father, we do continue to pray for Reverend Corse. We pray for that church, O oh Lord, that you would continue to strengthen and guide it as a light shining in the midst of the darkness throughout Bucharest, Romania, throughout that region. O oh Father, we pray for 
for upcoming efforts with opportunities of debate and interviews on TV and radio. Oh, Father, we pray that your gospel will just continue to go forward. Father, we pray that you would strengthen and guide us. Help us, O Lord. Father, we pray for wisdom. For there is much deception. Many false teachers. Oh, Father, we pray that you would keep us in the truth of your word, the authority of your word. Help us, O Lord. Father, we do continue to lift up to you those who are in a time of need. Father, we do continue to pray for Willie, for healing and comfort and strength, for wisdom and guidance for him and Laura. Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness and your care. Oh, Father, we continue to pray for Marcia, that you would be her strength, her peace, her hope, as she continues to grow physically weaker. Father, we thank you for how you hold, you hold us in your righteous right hand. Father, we pray for Rowena. Father, we pray for healing and comfort and strength. Oh, Father, we pray for wisdom and guidance. We just look to you, O oh Lord, as the source of all of our peace and our hope. Oh, Father, we do pray for Roman. Oh, Father, we pray that now he's in North Dakota. We pray that you would bring Christians into his life to speak your gospel, speak your truth, and reach out to him. Father, we pray for those, those who are being ministered to there at Coffee Oasis. Oh, Father, we pray that your gospel would go forward and you would seek and save the lost. Oh, Father, we pray for all the marriages represented here, oh Lord. We pray that they would display Ephesians 5, Christ in the church. Father, we pray for all our families. We pray for our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Oh, Lord, that they would know you, that they would love you, that they would seek you and serve you with their lives. Oh, Father, we thank you. And it's because of your promises and your faithfulness that we say the prayer that our Savior tossed to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debts. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning, we're continuing on in John chapter 4. I invite you to rise and read with me John chapter 4, verses 11 through 18. 11 through 18. <clears throat> context again is Jesus is weary from his travels. He is thirsty. 
And he is having a dialogue with a Samaritan woman about living water. So that's the context for where we are. So John chapter 4, starting at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I am no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. A lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, leading us and guiding us into life. Oh, Father, we are absolutely dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit to grow us in wisdom and discernment, to know the glorious truth of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to know the truth of your glory. Oh, Father, your word is all authoritative, all sufficient, inerrant and infallible. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would grow us up in the truth of your word. For it is only in the truth that we have any hope. In Christ's glorious name, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to invite any children who would like to. You want to come up for the children's message at this time. Well, good morning. Have you ever got water from a well? Have you ever got water from a well? Huh? Do you get water from a faucet? Yeah, you turn on the faucet. Turn on the faucet. But a lot of us, you turn on the faucet, and the water is coming from pipes in the house. And those pipes at some point go out of the house. And for a lot of us, they go, they go, and they go to bigger pipes, and then they go to this big tower that's holding water. So that's some of us. Other us. The pipes go out of the house and they go and they go and then they go into the ground to a well. Even that big tower at some point goes somewhere where it's drawing water. So you turn on your faucet 
to fill up your water or drink, and it just waters there. Have you ever turned on a faucet and there was no water? Has it ever happened to you? Yeah, yeah, that's something. No, that's a blessing. <laughs> you turn on a faucet and there's no water. Where's the water? Well, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And so far, as we're going through this story, this woman is still thinking of physical water that you drink. So far in our story, even today where we're getting, she's still just thinking of actual physical water. But Jesus is using the illustration of physical water to speak about the only thing that will truly fill us up, give us life, give us hope, give us peace. And it isn't physical water. It's the Holy Spirit. It's belief in him. It's life in Christ. So that's where Jesus, again, as we're going through this story, every time you hear this thirst, what it is to be thirsty and water, I want you to be thinking, Jesus is talking about this thirst of wanting the love of God, this thirst of of having God's forgiveness for your sin, this desire to have life with Christ. And that's what's given as a gift. So I want you to be thinking about that because that's where Jesus is taking us in this story. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that so many of us here are blessed that whenever we want physical water, we have access to it. What a blessing that is. But Father, it is an even greater blessing to have your Holy Spirit, to know and believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Help us, O Lord, to believe and trust in your Word and in your Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You guys head back to your seats. Last week, we began looking at John chapter 4. We looked at verses 1 through 10. Jesus had to leave Judea because the tensions were rising there. John, who was baptizing, had just been arrested, and he's about to be killed by Herod. And it is not time for Jesus to meet his death. So he leaves that region, even though the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders are growing in their anger and hostility. He leaves there to go back to the region of Galilee. But to get there, he goes directly through the area of Samaria. He goes through the area of the Samaritans. Most would go either right or left, Take the longer journey so that you wouldn't encounter what would make you unclean. But Jesus has a purpose in going through Samaria. And we see the central reason of this purpose being John chapter 4. This is what we see taking place. So Jesus is there. His disciples are away. And it is only Jesus and the Samaritan woman who has come to get water. 
And just before verse 11, Jesus said, if you knew me, you would be asking me for water. And that gets us into the context of verse 11. John 4, verse 11. Again, the woman is thinking according to the flesh. According to the flesh. So John 4, 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So this is the key. And ultimately, what we're seeing here in John chapter 4, John chapter 4 is one of the greatest chapters in Scripture to see how people are brought from death to life, how someone is converted, born again. It's this amazing process of seeing someone who is dead in their sins, who is mere flesh, under condemnation, under wrath, and Jesus speaking truth to them, and the Holy Spirit, through this interaction, taking them from flesh to spirit, giving them the gifts of understanding what before they could not understand, and bringing them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what takes place in John chapter 4. You have someone who is dead, lost in their sins, and is in no way seeking or searching the truth of Jesus Christ. They are lost. They are in the lies and deceptions of that region. And Jesus comes to them. He speaks the good news of the gospel to this Samaritan woman. The Holy Spirit's at work giving her understanding till at the end of the chapter, you have a proclamation of salvation. It's amazing. That's what you get in John chapter four. And that's what we are walking through right now. Uh, Verse 11 of John four, John four, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? What's so significant of this is John likes to parallel to make a point. He likes to take certain people and have them, they say very similar things. And what's amazing here is here you have the Samaritan woman who we find out by verse 18 that has a history of immorality. Here is this immoral Samaritan woman And she has just as much understanding of spiritual truth as Nicodemus, the, quote, righteous teacher of Israel. Isn't that amazing? They both are completely lost in their sin unless the Holy Spirit makes them alive. That's what John's doing here. So we see where Nicodemus makes the same kind of, what are you talking about? Statement that the Samaritan woman does. If you go back to John chapter 3, because where John chapter 3, Nicodemus is the main character that comes and interacts with Jesus, is John 4, it's the Samaritan woman. And what John is showing us here is it doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile, free slave, male, female, 
It doesn't matter what tribe, nation, language, and people. It doesn't matter what type or form of sin and rebellion you are or have been engaged in. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins unless God makes them alive. Salvation belongs to God and not to the dead sinner. So here you have this amazing reality. Here's your contrast. Nicodemus in chapter 3, Samaritan woman in chapter 4. So again, John chapter 3. Here Jesus makes a powerful statement, just like in 4, where he says, you should be asking me for living water. And she's like, what are you talking about? Well, this is Nicodemus in John. This is the chapter before. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him. This is to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that's, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. He's telling the Samaritan woman the same thing. In different words, it's a different context, but ultimately that's what he's going to be telling the Samaritan woman. She has to be born again. It's the same reality, but a very different context. So John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then here is Nicodemus, one of the members of the highest ruling religious authorities in Israel, one of the teachers of Israel, one of the highest standing, most powerful religious leaders of Israel, and this is Nicodemus's response. It's John 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, of course, the answer to that question is, yeah, that, that's impossible. That, yeah, that, there's no way that's happening. Because what's the problem with Nicodemus? He's, he, all he can think of is according to the flesh. The flesh, not the spirit, the flesh. And that's his problem. Unless the spirit brings about understanding of the truth, it doesn't matter what Jesus says, he will not understand. The Holy Spirit has to give someone the gifts of understanding. The Holy Spirit has to open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their hearts to believe, and their minds to understand. So there, that's Nicodemus. He's like, this makes no sense. And he presents him a scenario that is impossible. An elderly man like Nicodemus entering back into his mother's womb and being born again. Well, the Samaritan woman does the same thing. Again, John chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus just said, you should be asking me for living water. John chapter 4, verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. That's why it was such a good well. That's why it was such a reliable well. It was deep, and no matter what the famine or difficulty, because it was such a deep well in that, it was reliable. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? It's the same understanding as Nicodemus. And that's what's amazing about John in the Gospel of John. Here he's showing you it doesn't matter whether you're Nicodemus, 
or the Samaritan woman, you can have Jesus in the flesh. The eternally begotten Son of God incarnate speaking truth to you. But unless it's the will and purpose of the Father that you know the truth, and unless the Holy Spirit gives you a new mind and heart to understand and believe the truth, you won't understand. That's the reality. That's what John is showing here. This is this powerful statement of the sovereignty of God in salvation and how dead one is when they're dead in their trespasses and sins. We are absolutely dependent on God to make us alive. And that's what we see here. So again, verse 12, she asked this key question. And this is the key question, not only for her, but for Nicodemus, for the scribes, the Pharisees, religious leaders, everyone who interacts with Jesus, ultimately, what is their key question? Who do you think you are? With what you are teaching and what you're doing. This, this is the pushback. That's the main pushback. And that's what she does here in verse 12. John 4, verse 12. Here's her question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus here you see this depiction for her where Jacob is high and exalted. At least he's gave her something. She's got well. She gets water. Jesus don't even have a bucket. So that's her pushback. You, you think you're greater than him? This becomes the dominant theme throughout the New Testament. You see this again and again, this, this understanding Jesus is going to ultimately confront this with the scribes and Pharisees in John 8. This is when the scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders in John 8, he's now back with them. And they ask a very similar question. John chapter 8, verse 51. Here's this claim Jesus makes. John 8, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a claim. See, this is like for the Samaritan woman when he claims to give living water and she never have to draw from the well again. She's like, what, what kind of claim is that? Well, it's the same here. Here's what Jesus says in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So this is their response, verse 52 of John 8. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And there it is. It's that same, that is just, Continually, We're going to see that, Lord willing, in the Gospel of John, where they say, do you, you think you're greater than? And then they'll list off whoever they think is the greatest in their understanding of spiritual truth. 
Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Hi, hi, hi. One cannot claim a greater reality than that. When Jesus makes a statement, he says, yeah, he's greater than Abraham because he's eternal God. That's what he declares to them. So what is their response? 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to stone him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. That's what they're wanting to do. But Jesus, this is what he does again. Yeah, it isn't his time yet. He hid himself. Don't ask me how, but this, he just does this again and again. Just, whoop, he's out of there. He hid himself and went out of the temple. Because it wasn't his time or way to die, to be stoned to death. So, boop, he's gone. This, this is a dominant thing, not only through the Gospels, but through the New Testament. You see this in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, where you have Jesus indicting these Jewish towns and villages that he proclaimed the gospel in, and they wouldn't repent. They just sent them away. They didn't believe. So Matthew 12, verse 21, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. This is wicked Nineveh. With this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus claiming for himself. Again, verse 42 of Matthew 12 the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, someone greater then Solomon is here. This becomes the whole theme of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. The whole dominant theme of the letter to the Hebrews is the angels are great, Jesus is greater. The old covenant was great, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ is greater. Moses was great, Jesus Christ is greater. The high priests and sacrificial system were great. Jesus, the high priest, his one sacrifice is far greater. That's, that's just the entire theme of the letter to the Hebrews. And that's what we're developing here. So here, again, Matthew 4, what we're seeing is how God brings someone through the preaching of the gospel to the truth of Christ from death to life. And the first reality here is Jesus has to become the greatest. You have to be given the understanding that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he's greater than anyone, anything. That's a vital part of saving faith and belief. Because as long as you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but you have someone or something else higher or equal to, 
you'll always default to that person or that thing. It's, it's idolatry. You can't have two masters. You can only have one master. And this is the first vital reality of someone coming to a saving faith. We saw it with Nicodemus, and we see it here with the woman at the well. So here's Jesus' response to her saying, hey, Jacob was great. He gave us this well. You don't even have a bucket. So verse 13, this is Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. So again, Jesus is speaking a spiritual reality that she is yet to fully grasp or understand. Again, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that's how we know that what Jesus is depicting as water, living water, is the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's that's when we understand fully. She doesn't understand that fully. But we who are saved understand that that is then what Jesus is speaking of. So there's two realities in this verse that are vital to understand. One is never thirst again. What it is to be thirsty spiritually. And the second, how the Holy Spirit satisfies all spiritual thirst. Those are the two points of verse 4. So I want to look at that first one. We'll never thirst again. Again, there are so many Old Testament passages that Jesus is directing our attention to. The first and foremost, again, is Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 is is vital. This is right up there with Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. These promises of the new covenant of the Holy Spirit come to dwell within. Uh, Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 is, is, is foundational for that understanding of the new covenant. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Here's the call. Here's the gospel call. Come. Everyone who thirsts. And again, this is a spiritual reality. And the only way anyone will thirst is if the Holy Spirit has made you alive to realize you're dying and in need of this living water. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because until the Holy Spirit does that, we who are dead in our trespasses and sin will try to satisfy that thirst with everything other than Christ and the gospel. We will turn to everything of this world, every fallen desire of the flesh, and every lie of the devil trying to satisfy that thirst. That's what it means that we are corrupt and dead in our sins. We continue to do that. We are drinking salt water, Or we are like the proverbial dog licking antifreeze. 
It can't get enough. And it kills it. But it can't get enough. Oh, that's sweet antifreeze. But that, yeah, that's what we're doing. That is what we do in our sin until the Holy Spirit... What am I doing? That is killing me and not giving me life and satisfying my life. This, that's what has to take place. In Isaiah 55, this is... Jesus is almost directly quoting from. He's pointing us back to this. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, unless someone interpreted this as some wild socialist scheme, no, this is what, what this is depicting is this conviction that we have nothing, we can buy anything from God. We have no righteousness, we have no holiness. We are spiritually not only dead, but bankrupt. So the only way we can be saved is if it is a gift given that we can't earn, but someone else earns for us. Someone's got to pay. That's a very important concept for uh, tax codes and social theory. Someone's got to pay. Well, it's the same thing spiritually. Salvation is a gift to me, but someone had to pay. Well, it's Jesus Christ is the one who pays. And... But for me, for you, for all who are saved, it is a gift. That's the reality. That's the spiritual reality of salvation. So that's, again, Isaiah 55. You notice Isaiah 55 is after Isaiah 53. There you go. Remember, Isaiah 53 is your great Jesus crushed, pierced, forsaken under the wrath of God. Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest depictions of Jesus paying the price for our salvation. He pays the price for our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. It's by Jesus doing that on the cross, he pays the price so that we can receive the gift. And that's what Isaiah 55 verse 1 is depicting. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then verse 2, this is is again the necessity of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. I think to me that's, there's a lot of sad realities of someone who isn't saved. First and foremost is they're still under the condemnation and wrath of God. Secondly, that they're bound for eternal conscious torment of hell unless God saves them. But also there's this reality that every moment of their life, as long as they are out of true saving repentance and faith, every moment they are working 
for that which does not satisfy. They are thirsting and hungering, eating and drinking what only leads to death and not life. That's the actual reality of a life of someone unsaved. It's it's a horrific reality. That's what we see depicted here. Again, verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. There it is. That's that covenant, that promise of everlasting life for those who are in Christ, belong to him, in whom his spirit dwells. My steadfast, sure love for David. So this is this reality when Jesus says in John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That's it. Because that's that living water, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the price paid by Christ on the cross so that for us to be saved, repent, believe. Not by works, Not by obedience to the law. Repent and believe. Both of which are gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Because unless the Holy Spirit gives those gifts, no one's going to repent and no one's going to believe. It's all the sovereign work of God. This is what Jesus says in John 6. So John chapter 6 you have these, these two moments that point to Isaiah 55. It's John 4, him speaking to the Samaritan woman, and it's John 6 after he fed the 5,000, and then they go around the lake to find him the next day because they want more free food. They're taking Isaiah 55 according to the flesh. So he gave them free food that day. They go around the lake the next day, and what do they want? More free food. They even promised they'd make him king if he would just keep giving them free food. Isn't that amazing? So so this is Jesus' response in John 6. Because they were not understanding Isaiah 55 according to the Spirit. They were only according to the flesh. Like Nicodemus like the Samaritan woman. So here's John 6. Here's Jesus ultimately fulfilling that promise of Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. 
(coughs) but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. There it is. Look, believe, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then you go to John 7. You see where John 4 kicks off this theme that is then in every chapter through this entire section of John. John chapter 7, starting at verse 37. Here's Jesus now in Jerusalem after the big festival. He's there in the temple and he says this, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there again, what we see starting here in John 4 keeps building until that great proclamation of Jesus in the temple where he makes clear, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But to drink of Christ, you have to be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the greatest that he is Savior, he is Lord, and that only he can satisfy. (coughs) Again, as long as you have Jesus satisfying a part of your life and the things of this world and the flesh and the devil satisfying other parts of your life, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's the process we see being developed here in in John chapter (coughs) 4. David speaks of this thirst that only God can satisfy. Uh, He has many examples, but, but the two I want to read is one from Psalm 42 and one from Psalm 63. These are some of the greatest depictions of a soul through the conviction of one's sin that only God satisfies. No one else, nothing else. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God. Wow. Nothing else satisfies. Nothing else gives hope and peace and joy and life than the glorious truth of the gospel. Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Starting at verse 1. A psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah... Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. 
as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's that realization that nothing else, no one else will satisfy. Verse 2 of Psalm 63. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. There it is. Verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life. That means there, there is no life outside of the steadfast love of God. True life. Eternal life. That's what it is to thirst and to cry out. Again, we see this depiction of spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus speaks of that in John 7 when he says, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water, promising the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension. <coughs> we see that begin at Pentecost and continue on until Jesus' return. So first, one has to come to understand that Jesus is greater <coughs> and there's nothing else that can satisfy but the good news of Jesus Christ. But to come to that state of conviction, one has to understand their sin. And the wages of sin is death. There is no true repentance. I mean, there is no true faith and belief without repentance and contrition and grief over one's sin. That has to happen because unless one has true awareness of their sin and the grief of their sin, they'll have no appreciation of being saved from it. If your sin's not that big of a deal, then Jesus saving you isn't that big of a deal. See, it's directly, it's a parallel. Those things are the same. So to whatever degree you realize the reality of your sin is understanding the amazing grace and mercy shown to you in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why in this section of what we're looking at, now verse 5, 15, I mean, the woman said to him, Again, she's just thinking according to the flesh. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, <laughs> You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. To me, the, the parallel passage, whenever I come to this part in John 4, I'm, I'm always taken in my mind to 1 John chapter 1. To me, 1 John chapter 1 
illustrates what Jesus is doing here. What, what is taking place in revealing his knowledge of her sin. First uh, John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, I think is, is the best commentary of what's taking place in John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It's 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John chapter, 1 John, I mean, I'm sorry if I didn't say, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see the vital necessity there of confession, of understanding forgiveness in the reality of our sin. It's vital, vital to be saved. So if there's anyone here that in light of your sin, you're like, eh, yeah, I make a few mistakes. I do things. Yeah, I regret some things. But, but either if you think, well, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Or if you're thinking, well, hopefully the good will outweigh the bad in some great scale. Let me tell you, you're in trouble. And you should be grievously concerned. So let me issue that warning. Now, if you are in the throes of grief over your sin and what you've done before God, and it grieves you in that, and you're wondering, how can I, who have done such wicked things, be saved? Well, let me assure you that if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, all your sins are washed away. He satisfies. He gives life, forgiveness, love, and hope. Let us pray. Oh, Father, how wonderful you are. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You're a God of vengeance wrath and jealousy. You are merciful, gracious, and loving. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to convict us of our sin and the glorious promise of salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's glorious name, amen. I invite you to rise and sing with me number 265. In Christ alone, my hope is found.
depths of peace when fears are still when striving Let's receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I invite you to close with me with the Gloria Patria. Amen.
go in peace.